In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Johnny. I wonder on a sort of scale of the taxi driver sort of having to be outside beeping, waiting for you to finally come out to get in the thing, to on the other extreme, waiting outside in the freezing cold 15 minutes before the taxi's even there. How important punctuality sort of is in your life. Um, my father-in-law is particularly um, uh, focused on sort of timekeeping like that. He's much more towards the second one there. In fact, actually, the funniest story of this is uh, in, the, in the run up to, uh, I'm not sure actually which one of his daughters it was um, being born. Uh, and obviously, you know, when the moment sort of finally comes and you realise that, okay, when we're not far off now from Labour, obviously a lot of panic and nerves kind of set in. Um, so, you know, a lot of things that you maybe wouldn't think you'd be capable of being that stupid is, is, is possible. But one of the funniest stories I have of, of Alan is uh, the taxi comes for them to, to, to get to the hospital. And Alan sort of so focused on kind of getting there um runs out to the taxi sort of with the bag and everything he's done his part he's there in the taxi waiting shouting for my mother-in-law Wendy to come out come on Wendy come on as he sat in the taxi on his own while she's having to lock up and everything behind him because he's so focused on keeping the time of of getting there he loses sight of actually uh <laughs> maybe you needed to help Wendy into the taxi first our story this morning is really all about the importance of keeping God's timing. This should have been a great celebration, uh, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, at which the crowd would have seen that Jesus was really the fulfillment of it. And yet, actually, it turns sour. But we see Jesus' commitment to keeping God's timing, even in the face of his brother's confusion and the crowd's complaints. Firstly, here, these first eight verses here, we see a, a lousy, loving advice. We see that his brothers don't understand his mission. We're told here after this, in verse one, uh, we picked up uh, from the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the teaching on I'm the bread of life that kind of followed on after, after that. And between then, which was happening around about the Passover time, and now the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been uh, in our months, different calendar systems, but in ours, roughly about October. Um, there's been about uh, between three and six months uh, between those two events. So there's been an interlude of time here in which actually John doesn't account for. The other gospel writers do, and they'll give us some of the details of some of the things that happen there. But John doesn't. He just sort of wants to leave it as a time that for him is less critical to, to where he wants to go on to now with this event here. And he picks up the story now at the Feast of Booths. This is uh, sometimes called in scripture Feast of Tabernacles. It was a celebration of, of the harvest and it remembered as well God's provision and his protection in the wilderness uh, wanderings. And the people would sleep in tents, you know, in their back gardens and things, and it would remember the time in which they were living in tents together. And 
bear in mind where John has just picked up, and I think this is why John leaves some of that stuff in between. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's that he's really wanting to carry on the same point that he has. It's partly why that he didn't spend very much time talking about the walking on water. He wanted to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching about it. And then he wants to get to this moment here because it continues really what, what Jesus has been saying over these last few events. Remember, Jesus has just fed people in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness. He's just fed them with miraculous bread. And he's then followed that up by saying, I am the bread of life. And here we are at a harvest celebration, remembering God's provision for people through the wilderness wanderings. This should have been Jesus's party. They should have realized actually Jesus himself was the gift of all gifts. That Jesus himself was the full kind of fulfillment of God's presence on earth. That as good as the presence that they had in the tabernacle and in the temple after it, what they had in Jesus was the fullness of God's presence right before them. And yet that's not quite how this celebration winds up. We're told here, verse one, the Jews were seeking to kill him and perhaps in... Uh, might be better to read the Jewish authorities were seeking to kill him, particularly the religious authorities, just as we already know from chapter five, verse 18, that this was happening. But John picks this up again, that this this hasn't uh, calmed down. If anything, the hatred has really festered and grown over the intervening months. Things have spiralled from the crowds desiring to make Jesus king by force to wanting to murder him. And so we see a turning point in the gospel that we're now leaving off the period where actually Jesus has this unparalleled and uh, crazy, really, sort of fame and popularity to now it is going to go right the other way. We're told here, verse three, he goes to Judea. He's, he's encouraged to go to Judea that the disciples may see the works that you're doing. In the intervening months, Jesus hasn't been to Judea because actually he knows that those who are trying to kill him are all in Judea. Judea is the southern area of Israel uh, at the time, which included, most importantly, uh, Jerusalem. But in general, was a more affluent, more significant uh, place uh, had the bigger cities, it had more money, it had more influential people. Hopefully here you can see a little uh, map there that just shows uh, the journey that Jesus makes. It's roughly an 85 mile journey south from Capernaum, which was uh, where the, uh, the miracle of the feeding and, and then the teaching, everything was happening just around the Sea of Galilee there. You can see um, Capernaum on one side, and Bethsaida on the other. The miracle happens in Bethsaida and then he travels across to Capernaum where the teaching occurs and then he makes this uh, long journey back down to the south here. This was the place that really if you wanted to be some somebody that was where you would go. You wouldn't be in the kind of towns and the kind of villages that Jesus grew up in and had spent obviously much of his life in. It was seen as a nowhere kind of place. And so his brothers quite understandably in some way say to him, go to Judea, go to Judea that the disciples may see the works you're doing. 
Who do they have in mind when they say the disciples? Because, of course, he has the 12 disciples following closely with him, has a slightly sort of larger sort of extended crowd who are following by as well, but are not as close as the disciples. So what disciples do they mean? I think who the brothers mean, and this is why John wants to put this so close uh, to the story of the miraculous feeding and then the the crowd who disperse as when they hear Jesus's words they don't all hear the same things the disciples hear the words of eternal life and say where else could we go the rest of the crowd are offended and put off and walk away who do the brothers mean when they say go to Judea that you may uh, that your disciples may see the works you do they mean the disciples that you lost you need to go to Judea and win back your crowd. What are you ever going to achieve without a crowd? Go so that the disciples may see the works you're doing. And notice what it is that they think he should win the crowd back with. Go and do the miraculous works. Everybody likes the works. They loved the feeding. They didn't like the teaching of what it meant and who Jesus was. It's always been the way. People like some of the ideas of the miraculous works of God. They'll like it when it does something for them, materially, financially, that he'll feed you, that he'll give you what you want. People like the works. They don't like the words. And the difference between those who really know Jesus and really worship him are those who love his words, who know and hold on to and trust in who he says he is, what he says he has come to do, and who he says that we are. It's what we make of the words that matters. But for the brothers here, they say, why not stick to what people love? <coughs> people love the works. The rationale is clear, verse 4, that no one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. So they say to him, show yourself to the world. And you see here, no one works in secret. Jesus hasn't been working in secret, but you see the connection that they're making between his location, that to work in Galilee is to essentially be in secret. You're nothing and you're no one if you're doing this in a place like Galilee. Nobody cares. Nobody's looking, nobody's watching, no cameras are here. You need to go to the big city where you're really going to get spotted. No one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. Show yourself to the world. For the brothers, Jesus seems to lack confidence, seems to lack that bit of sort of strategic thinking or that ability to manoeuvre himself into the right circles and the right places. It, it may all be great, well-meaning advice from the brothers, and I think it is. I think they see in, in Jesus someone with great potential, but who perhaps might not realise all that he's got and might not know what to do with it. It's all well-meaning, but very lousy, loving advice. For the brothers, the idea is, well, go to the big city so that you can find acceptance. So that you can build your following, so that you can get a bigger stage, so that you can find success. And yet Jesus will go 
to the big city to be rejected, to lose his followers, to be put to death, to save us. It's a truth that we might know ourselves that only family really can give advice that's so bad with intentions that are so good. It's lousy but loving advice. And what's the problem? Well, it's diagnosed here. It was unbelief, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. There's a surprise in that verse in a way on the one hand it's making clear that look the rejection of Jesus has come so close to home we've seen of course the big crowds walk away we've seen even some of the followers walk away we're told by Jesus at the end of the last chapter that Judas one of the 12 will walk away but now even his family don't understand who he is and don't believe in who he is we know from other gospel accounts that actually they were saying that he is crazy they were coming to try to take him and bring him back home because he's causing embarrassment to the family they think he's really just lost the plot and yet there's a surprise in the verse not even the brothers believed in him because i think we all also might know something of the sense of how easy it is for us as siblings to not believe in one another. In many ways, it's entirely understandable that you not think so much at times of your siblings. How annoying must it have been to be, uh, to be a brother of Jesus? To be a brother to the perfect brother, the one who always has the right response, always does the right thing, always has the right timing. It must have been difficult must be very exposing of your own frailties to live with one who is perfect. Not even the brothers believed in him. We've seen that unbelief in the crowds, in the followers, even in the twelve, and now even in his family. And Jesus reflects on this verse 7 here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me. The world is not neutral to Jesus. There are some times, and you'll find them, you know, books even written with this title, the world loves Jesus, but it hates the church. No, it doesn't. The world hates Jesus. The world loves a caricature of Jesus. The world loves a caricature of Jesus in its own character and own personality and with their own values superimposed upon him. The world loves a reflection of itself that they project upon Jesus not Jesus. When we meet Jesus as he reveals himself, the world hates him. Why does it hate him? Verse 7 here, because I testify against it that its works are evil. It's not a palatable message. Perhaps now we can see why the brothers are convincing him. Go up to that and show him the works, because here's the message. The world's works are evil. It's not palatable. It's offensive. It's confrontational. Jesus is not carefully synthesizing his message in focus groups, trying to find the greatest mass market appeal. And yet we see Jesus' rationale here for his response. Verses six and eight. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is not losing sight 
of his father's calling. In the course of John's gospel from chapters two to eight, nine times, we hear that Jesus's hour has not yet come and that that directs what he does and what he says. And he knows that this is not his moment. This is not what he has been sent to do yet. And then four times in the close sort of timing to his death, we hear that it has come. That because he knew his moment had come, now he steps in to all that God had planned and prepared for him. And we also hear Jesus of saying to the disciples about their hour that would be to come in the aftermath of his death and resurrection. That an hour would come where they would be called on to be his witnesses. Jesus knows what God has called him to and he knows when it will come. And that means, by extension, he knows how to turn down the hours, the moments, the opportunities that are not his hour. And he has the discipline to leave him alone. I think it makes us ask, do you know what God has called you to? And by extension, then, do you know what he has not called you to? Because that helps you pass up good opportunities that aren't for you. They help you to discern the moments, the hours that are not yours, that are not to come yet. Um, I love watching cricket and uh, much like Dark Side of the Moon, it's another thing that, you know, uh, me and Karis disagree on. Uh, she thinks it's incredibly boring. Of course it is in some ways, but to give you one lesson from it, uh, as a batsman in cricket, there are so many uh, deliveries that you face and many of them are not coming directly at your stumps. They're not going to directly hit your wicket and get you out that way. The best way to get people out is to put the ball in what's called the corridor of uncertainty just a little bit outside of the stumps is probably not going to them, but you can't be sure. But equally, you don't know how confident you can be to hit it as to whether actually you might just nick it and it might fly off behind you off the edge of your bat and you might get out. The secret of a really great batsman is not so much all the shots that you can play. There are lots of very talented people who can play very many shots, that's great. But when the game depends on uh, the reality that only one ball is needed to get you out, and that's your input over. It's the balls that you leave that is the sign of a really great batsman. Knowing when it is you don't need to do anything, that your ego doesn't have to drive you into showing off in a moment where you can't possibly win, but you could lose. It's knowing what to leave, and it's so true of life. There are a great many opportunities, moments, relationships, jobs, all sorts of things that come before us. And it's knowing the ones to pass up. That is so often key in the trajectory of our lives, knowing what things to leave go. Are you pursuing someone else's hour? You may be pursuing an hour that's not yet to come. 
or perhaps an hour that ought not come. Jesus knows his hour and it helps him to pass up opportunities that were not right for him in that moment, no matter how well-meaning his brothers may have been in this advice. Jesus had come to serve, not to be served. He'd come to be rejected, not to be accepted. And to die for the crowd, not to live off the crowd. The temptation would be to build that crowd to be able to live off it. But he knew he'd come to die for it. There's a lousy, loving advice. Secondly, we get this unexpected arrival at the feast because for all of uh, Jesus's sort of opposition to the brother's advice to go to the feast, he actually winds up there, doesn't he? He remained in Galilee, verse 9 to 10 there. But then after the brothers had gone up, verse 10, he went up, not publicly, but in private. And the thing we see here in these next few verses is that they don't understand his identity. But there's a question there, isn't there? You know, why convince his brothers he's not going? Uh, and then he goes quietly. You know, was Jesus lying when he said that before? Or, or has he changed his mind, had a change of heart here? Or was he perhaps just a bit scared before and now he's so, so, sort of suddenly found his courage? Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I think what we find is Jesus is protecting his brothers. Even if you let him down, he still looks out for you. He's the best brother. He's looking out for them because now the brothers can genuinely say when people uh, uh, kind of inquire after them, oh, Jesus isn't coming. He told us and they're not lying. That's as far as they know, he's not coming and he's not with them. They're not going to be in trouble because he's there with them at that time. Jesus is protecting his brothers by going up quietly and in relative secret. And they were inevitably here, verse 11, looking for him at the feast. There's an opportunism here. Can we catch him out? Or can we find that actually he hasn't come up and we realise that he's a coward? Where is Jesus? What is he doing? The uh, American political drama House of Cards uh, begins with this uh, amazing uh, scene. We meet the main character uh, Francis Underwood and a dog has been knocked over in the street and he uh, gives this little speech to the camera as he actually puts the dog out of its misery he says moments like this require someone like me someone who will act who will do what no one else has the courage to do the unpleasant thing the necessary thing of course he's speaking partly about that moment but actually it's it's a sort of reveal of what his character is going to be like through the course of the drama. And what you come to realise is that for Francis Underwood, he says this out of a willingness to do whatever it takes to advance himself. But Jesus shares some of that perspective, except Jesus does this out of a willingness to do whatever he must do to do what God has called him to do and to sacrifice himself. The thing that nobody else might have the courage to do, the thing that is unpleasant, the thing that is necessary. Why does he go? Because he will do whatever he must do to do what is right and what is needed, no matter what. He was 
keeping the feast as was the expectation, even though he knows that coming to the crowds in this city means that there's risk to his life. There's much murmuring, we're told here, verse 12. Some saying he's a good man. Some saying, no, he's leading the people astray. They don't understand his identity and there's a division about it. And uh, you may perhaps have uh, remembered a uh, quote from C.S. Lewis about this. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher this is the exact dilemma that people are having here uh, can we can we just say that he's a good teacher and maybe we can agree on that we don't have to agree that he's God but here's the problem that other people actually are realizing and they're sort of partly right that no if we're saying that what he's saying isn't true but we just want to say he's a good man no actually really we're saying he's a bad man a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher who would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. It's often a way to dismiss Jesus, is to try to pay lip service to, oh, well, I think he was a great moral teacher. He's, there's some great lessons in some of the things he said, but quite simply, if what he said isn't true, then actually he must be a very bad person Indeed, he's dividing opinion here and it really comes down to none of them particularly believing that what he says is true. It's either we want to sort of have the maybe nicer, more palatable thing of saying, oh, we think he's a good man, a good teacher. Or some maybe following through the logic a little bit better, but saying, no, actually, he's not good at all. He's leading people astray here with what he's saying. And as a result, for fear of the Jews or the Jewish authorities, really, would be better translation no one spoke openly of him just as the brothers encourage him unless you go out to Judea and the big cities how are people going to know you openly well here nobody spoke openly of him for fear they lack the courage that Jesus has in coming here but the scene builds tension up for the arrival in verse 14 here so that if you were afraid to speak Jesus isn't and we get his speech here, verse 14 onwards. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And we realise that they haven't understood his mission, firstly. They haven't understood his identity. And thirdly, now they're not going to understand his teaching. Why had Jesus come quietly and after the brothers sometime into things? Well, he did it, I think, so that he wouldn't lose the chance to teach. He didn't want to risk being arrested on the way and not actually get to teach. What would have been the point of that in the end? We're told here they marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? He defies their expectations. Jesus hasn't been a disciple with a rabbi. He's simply worked with his father in the family business. He's from a nowhere town. How can he speak like this to us? And maybe perhaps you might know something of that feeling. That's not quite the same as, as Jesus, but something of that having to defy expectations. Maybe you come from a place, an estate or a postcode where nobody is known to go on to great things. 
where there's no great expectations of anybody. I grew up uh, the street I sort of lived on for the first, uh, I don't know, what was it, maybe about seven, eight years of my life. Uh, our neighbour across the road was a drug baron. He had three houses knocked through, uh, eventually got caught up and arrested finally after years of, of terrible things he did. Our neighbour uh, next door ran a dog fighting ring and uh, the, the neighbour upstairs, I could probably most politely describe as being private security. No great expectations for anyone from wherever he came from. Nobody would have expected anyone from there really to amount to very much at all. Jesus comes from a place like that. And he defies their expectations. And there's something maybe of a resentment. How can you come here to this great and talk to us like this? They can't challenge his teaching too much because, as we've heard gospel writers before this, he speaks with authority, with clarity and authority and power that all these great learned teachers don't have. And yet there's a bit of resentment, too, because it's you shouldn't be able to do this. People that come from where you're from shouldn't be able to do this for us. Yet he speaks with this authority. Doesn't come from a place of acceptance, doesn't come from a particular formal position, and doesn't come from his level of education. It comes because he speaks of what he knows. He speaks of his father, of his father's words, of his father's works. He speaks of what he knows in a way that others simply don't know. Verse 16, my teaching isn't mine, but is his who sent me. And the implication is as well, flip the sentence the opposite way round. My teaching isn't mine, but his who sent me. Your teaching is yours. Your teaching is just your opinions on a bunch of things. What I'm bringing you is, is the words of God the Father. The origin, the focus, the value is all found in the Father, not just his own opinions. Uh, that might seem a pacifying thing. Maybe it's Jesus here trying to kind of deflect responsibility. Well, I'm only telling you what my father told you. Actually, no, quite the opposite. It's inflammatory. It's knowingly inflammatory. Because we know that one of the tensions from verse uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, is that Jesus was making himself equal to God by saying that he had come from the Father and he was working just as the Father was working. His explanation and rationale for his healing of the paralytic on the Sabbath is that he is working as his Father is working. And they quite rightly make the deduction that what Jesus is saying here is he's making himself equal to God. And he absolutely was. And he's reminding them again and inflaming it again. The teaching I bring you isn't mine, but his who sent me. When you reject my teaching, you're rejecting the Father because it's his words that I'm bringing and it's him that I'm speaking of. He's saying that his words are as good as the Father's words. Verse 70, if anyone's will is to do his will, that's the Father's, he'll know whether the teaching he brings is from God. Faith brings a certain discernment, a certain ability to see where it comes from, the will is. And what do we look for? Well, verse, 30, uh, verse 18 here, we're told, the, 
the one who speaks on their own authority seeks his own glory. There's the test. There's a test of whether you can tell whether teaching really is from God and really is the Father's words is, are they seeking their own glory? Because if they are, they're not seeking his will and it's not coming from him. Who does Jesus maybe have in mind? Well, chapter 5, verse 44, this is the same complaint and criticism he's levelled against them before. How can you know anything of my father when you still go around receiving glory from one another and seeking glory from one another. He's thinking of them. My teaching's not like your teaching. You just bring your opinions. I bring instead the words of my father. You bring your teaching looking for glory to yourself. I bring this teaching looking for glory to the father. And we know that actually that can happen just as well today. That there's a way of speaking that will win approval, that will win retweets and shares and acclaim and articles that doesn't do much to make much of God but is about personality and oratory and rhetoric but here the true test is does it make much of God does it make much of God the Father does it make much of Jesus the Son does it make much of the Spirit if it does We've no reason to doubt where it comes from. If perhaps it lacks some of that, you might question where it comes from. They don't understand his teaching. Lastly, we see that they don't understand the law. Jesus puts court in session for them here. He says, verse 19, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? This is huge offence. <laughs> None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The law for them is so important. It's their problem with Jesus. They believe that in healing the man on the Sabbath, he broke the Sabbath, that he shouldn't have worked on the Sabbath. If the law is so important to you, why is it that that's a problem? But it's OK for you to seek to kill me. None of you keeps the law. This is hugely offensive because they believe they have kept the law. They believe they've kept the law. They believe that they have earned God's favour and they believe they deserve that because they are more righteous. And yet really what we see is the law exposes our flaws. It doesn't save us. You look in a mirror as much as you like, it'll not change the reflection that comes back. It'll expose to you the things that you don't like. It'll offer nothing to help you. I spend a massive amount of time looking at my own face on sort of Zoom and it's very uncomfortable. Um, and I'll be honest with you, probably at least sort of a third of my concentration is always actually, if I'm to be honest, looking at my face and what I look like. Uh, and I find it hugely uncomfortable because I find myself looking at my double chin and stuff and frustrated. But as much as I look at that reflection, it doesn't change it. The law is like a mirror. It exposes your flaws, it exposes your weakness, it exposes your need. It has no power to change your performance. You have a demon, they say, who's seeking to kill you? The crowd's not in on the plot. And as far as they can see, is Jesus being sort of very melodramatic. And uh, maybe he's one of those people, and sometimes you meet them, who's almost got a martyrdom complex. Do you know someone who almost wants things to go wrong? 
you, you might know someone like that, you know, who's they're almost looking for it. They, they, they're almost hoping, it seems, that, that things will kind of um, all go wrong. Maybe, maybe that's Jesus. He says, I did one deed and you marvel it. Again, the deed he's thinking about here is, is the healing in chapter five. This is one to nine, that healing on the Sabbath. Here's the problem. Did it on the Sabbath. And secondly, that he told the man, take up your bed. And they believe that Jesus broke the Sabbath himself by working and that he encouraged somebody else to break the Sabbath by picking up his bed. They believe he broke the law. But now Jesus gives his legal defense and shows that actually far from breaking the law, Jesus upheld the meaning and the purpose of the law. And look, he, he does it much like what a lawyer, I suppose, would do. Firstly, he takes his legal precedent for why he did what he did. Verse 22, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. This is precedent. You don't believe that you can't do any work on a Sabbath because you think it's okay in certain circumstances to circumcise a child um, on the Sabbath in order to keep the law because you were told to do that. And it would be better to do that, even though it does mean you're working, if it means keeping that promise. Because they perceive that verse 23 here keeping the law of Moses making sure it's not broken is more important perhaps than that particular piece of work there's this precedent there are certain circumstances where it is more important to do what is necessary in order to keep God's promises and to do some work and now here's his defense verse 23 are you angry because on the sabbath I made a man's whole body well if it's okay for you to do uh, you know, a medical practice of, of sort of minor mutilation in order to keep the law of God, surely is it not right for me to heal a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Isn't that more important? And the argument there is a lesser to a greater. If you can circumcise on the Sabbath, then surely you can heal the whole body. There's a legal inconsistency. They don't know the law as well as they think they know the law. And again, this is inflammatory from Jesus, and he knows that. He's not shying away from that. He's confrontational about it. You have not understood the law you think you know and love so much. But secondly, there's a moral inconsistency. And we see this still with religious people that it's okay for you to judge others but you'll justify yourselves that you're willing to accept collateral damage to other people but you'll reject even just being offended by Jesus's teaching here where do we see some of this most Actually, we, we see some of this most in, in secular culture, that it will do this, even without the veneer of formal religion, that idea of self-righteousness, and yet the inconsistencies of judgment and uh, things towards others. One of them is, last year, 42 million abortions. The greatest single killer of anybody on planet earth by a long way 
and just recently when uh, greater abortion freedoms were introduced in Argentina, there was a street celebration about that, as if that was some great achievement. That's great. Legal and moral inconsistencies about a secular culture that says it wants nothing to do with formal religion, but very much has a code of self-righteousness, but one that somehow is okay with some great inconsistencies like this. And that's just one. So Jesus tells him here, don't judge by appearance, but with right judgment. Jesus kept God's timing in order to give his life for us that we may be saved. We can be thankful this morning that Jesus passed up the opportunity and the temptation to simply just rebuild his crowd with a popular and mass appealing message. But as you know, he stuck to the mission and to the words and to the works that the father had given him that leads to him giving up his life for us, being willing to embrace rejection and misunderstanding in order to give his life that we might find new life in him. And so it causes us to also ask of ourselves, will we keep God's timing? Will we keep to his plan? Will we trust him? We trust him to know how to handle our lives better than we can. Will we trust that God has everything in his hands and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him? Situation: Jesus is tempted at the beginning of his ministry. And one of the things that Satan tries to tempt him with is to make things happen. He's not known. So Satan approaches him and he says, Throw yourself off the temple. God will bear you up on angels. He won't let you hurt yourself. Why, why would he encourage him to do it? So that people will see you. Make something happen. Why are you trusting God's timing that has left you here in the wilderness with me, 40 days, hungry, thirsty, weak? Why are you trusting his plan? Why don't you make something happen for yourself? Jesus sends him away. But a telling verse at the end of it says that Satan left him until an opportune time. I think one of those opportune times was here, this lousy, loving advice of brothers who cared for him, but misunderstood him. Go rebuild your crown, make something happen. Jesus's faithfulness to God's timing is what enabled him to give his life that might save us. Thank God that. Jesus was so focused on keeping to God's plan. We need to trust him too, just as Jesus did in his earthly life, to trust God's plan, to trust his timing, to not feel that we have to go and make things happen for ourselves, that it might be better if we take control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. We don't have to try to have that unwinnable task of controlling all of life we can trust him to do a much better job than us i'm going to pray and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together father god i just thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy towards us i thank you for having sent jesus your son to come and to to reveal you in in a form that we can understand in in, in bodily form it's so hard to understand you in that sort of formless 
kind of saying, you know, beyond everything. It's just really hard to, in any way, um, wrap our minds around you. So, so thankful, Lord, that you would send Jesus to come and to reveal yourself to us. But Lord Jesus, so thankful that also that you would come and would uh, submit yourself to God's plan, to God's timing, to your Father's will that included giving yourself for us, being rejected for us, dying for us, that we might find life in you. Lord, I pray this morning that you might, uh, those of us who know you, that you might just again encourage us with all that you've done for us in that, and that we can trust you too, that we can put our lives in your hands and know that you will do a better job for us. And Lord, I pray for those who might know not know you yet, the Lord, as we were reading at the very beginning, that the light might break in the darkness. That you might reveal your son to them. That they might know that they can trust you with their lives for themselves. That, Lord, they might know your salvation this morning. That they might know your loving care and adoption into your family. They might know that they're your child that you care for them, that you love them, protect them, you provide for them, because you're a good, good father. Thank you so much for all that you are and all that you've done, Lord. Amen. Yeah, we're going to sing our closing song together, uh, which is...